morning's scripture is from the first book of Corinthians, chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child... I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Well, good morning, and it's uh, good to be home. Uh, Last weekend, we were in Canmore at a beautiful wedding, and we were all glad to be home when we finally got home. I think we counted uh, 64 ditches that, 64 cars that hit the ditch uh, between uh, Calgary and Edmonton coming back. Uh, But we all managed to get home safely, and I know that the attendance was strong here at TCC last Sunday, given the weather conditions. And uh, so we are, uh, we're excited to be back. And uh, Pastor Norb and I thought that we would uh, tackle a new series of messages called Living in High Definition with the Apostle Paul. And the thought was to take uh, one of Paul's uh, letters each Sunday and kind of try to come to the main theme of what Paul was writing about in that particular letter. Sounded like a good idea when we hatched up the idea uh, until you actually start and then you realize what you're in for, that there is so much material to try to reduce to one major theme or one major thought. Uh, What is Paul really saying to the church in Rome? What is he really saying to the church in Corinth that we're going to look at this morning? But I I think what's exciting and uh, isn't Paul... Isn't Paul an amazing servant of God? I'm sure in these weeks that we will gain insight uh, into the man himself, not only his writings. I I am so impressed with Paul, uh, with his courage, with his stamina. Uh, he uh, He is going where no one has ever gone before in terms of sharing the message of Jesus Christ. He's on the road, traveling. I mean, if, if you've been on the road, if that, if your job takes you out of town and you're on the road a lot, 
You know, it's glamorous for a while, but then it's difficult after a while. He's on the road traveling and bringing the word of God to one town after another. He's planting churches all over the place. Sometimes he's not physically well and he pushes on. Sometimes he's beaten and mistreated, but he pushes on. Sometimes he's thrown in prison and he, then he's thrown out of town and looks like he's dead, but he gets up and he walks away and he's off to the next town. He's a tremendous heart for God. He wrote this letter to the church at Corinth during the time when he was stationed in Ephesus. Paul had already visited Corinth. He actually lived there for about a year and a half. Uh, so he got to know the city pretty well. He got to know the lay of the land, so to speak. He actually worked as a tent maker in Corinth uh, uh, just so that he wasn't a burden to the people, to the church there. He, uh, he met some people from Rome, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, and they seemed to connect uh, really, really well. So he had uh, colleagues in ministry in Corinth. And uh, wasn't it wonderful of God that Paul had some friends who uh, really understood his heart? And he had that kind of fellowship there. I mean, I think ministry can be lonely if you don't have some people in your life that you can talk to and you can relate to and you can ask some questions and they can say, what do you think of this? Or... Uh, how do you handle that? I mean, I'm so grateful for the staff that we have. We're a, we're a small staff, but, but what great fellowship we have together and how we can grow together and, and, and kind of we're all on the same page, going the same direction, and, and it, it causes us to feel encouraged uh, as we serve together. The city of Corinth, here it is on the map, uh, kind of close to where those two X's are at, not quite there. Uh, it's not too far from Athens, Greece. It's about uh, 50 miles to the west of Athens. Uh, modern Corinth is uh, the l second largest city in the Peloponnese. Uh, that's that, uh, that major island there where Sparta is. And there's a little connecting isthmus, and you see Corinth there. Uh, the famous Corinthian Canal cuts across that isthmus allowing some smaller vessels to pass through, saving valuable time. They wanted to make this canal for years in history, but finally didn't accomplish it until about the end of the 19th century. Uh, but Corinth was a uh, bustling place in the days of Paul. It's a seaport, and well, to say the least, things are always really hopping in Corinth. It was a place where new ideas were spouted because of the travel and because of philosophies, uh, that were introduced to the city. It was a Roman colony. It was a place where many cultures and religions mingled. It was a very pluralistic environment. The worship of many gods, multiple temples were in existence. Probably the main was the temple of Epaphrodite, which at one time uh, they believed uh, provided employment for a thousand temple prostitutes. I probably said that too kindly, provided employment uh, a thousand prostitutes uh, served in that temple. It, it was the dark side of the city. The dark side of sexuality was uh, everywhere. Perversion, unfaithfulness in marriage, uh, mixing of uh, pagan worship with uh, the temple prostitutes. I mean, it was one very mixed up city. There was a dark side to it. It was a port city. It was a sin city. 
Dr. Ray Stedman, uh, he's passed on some years ago, but he used to call these letters the letters to the Californians because he, he said California was a lot like Corinth. I didn't say that. He said that. Into this darkness, uh, Paul came to establish a church. And uh, people responded to the gospel. Isn't that encouraging? There isn't a church in Athens, but in this dark city, this port city, this sin city of Corinth, uh, there's a church. People responded to the gospel. In the darkest parts of the world, people need Christ. And here was a church that was birthed, but birthed in a culture that was filled with tough issues. And uh, these new Christians needed to work through all the issues. They were deeply influenced by what they saw happening around them in their environment. So it took a while for them to understand what it really meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Discipleship was a huge need. They needed to grow and mature in Christ. And the more Paul preached in Corinth, the more opposition he stirred up. Usually that's the way it works. Many Jews came to Christ, which of course was good, but it brought down the wrath of the rest of the Jewish leaders in authority. And when the Jews strongly opposed Paul's teaching at the synagogue, he shook the dust from his garments, the scripture says, and he moved, and I like this, he moved right next door. <laughs> to the synagogue, of the synagogue, to the home of justice. And uh, there uh, things continued to get heated for Paul. He must have wondered about leaving Corinth uh, and saying, wow, things are getting pretty hot and heavy here. I'm going to get out and, and moving on to other cities. But it was at this critical moment that God gave Paul direct guidance by means of a night vision. And uh, God said, don't be afraid, speak out. Don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack and harm you, for many people in this city belong to me. Oh, what crucial timing. And what a powerful word for Paul, so that he didn't leave prematurely. God said, I've got many people here who belong to me. There will be many who will receive the good news, so don't, don't go yet. You're needed here. What an important word when you're tempted to start, start to say, I've had it, just to listen to the voice of the whisper of God and say, I'm, I'm going to stick in there. But this was a young church, an immature church with a host of problems. And Paul writes this letter from Ephesus and he's concerned about discipleship. His heart is burdened that this young church understands what the church is meant to be. He's concerned about holiness and purity and faithfulness and all of these things. What are the issues in Corinth? Oh, so many. I'm going, to, I'm going to be very quick with this. But one of them was division and disunity. The congregation had divided into little camps over issues and over leadership. They were quarreling over petty stuff. There were cliques and religious snobbery. They, they were feeling like, uh, oh, you don't count unless you belong to my little group. And if you're not in with our little group, well, you're not very significant. They were boasting and they were filled with pride. And Paul says, if you want to boast, boast in the Lord. There were sexual improprieties. And Paul calls the church's attention to the man in their midst who is living in an incestuous relationship with his father's wife. 
We assume a stepmother. And this man carried on in his sin publicly before the church and before the unsaved in Corinth. And he didn't have any qualms about it. And Paul is saying, my goodness, even, even your neighbors, even the environment, even, even the pagans don't do this. And he was not re repentant, and yet he, he remained a part of this congregation. <clears throat> and the church just allowed him the freedom to carry on. almost seemed like they were condoning it. And Paul addresses this and says, what a blight that is on the testimony of the church and so it's a reminder uh, to the church to hold one another accountable in love. And then Christians were taking one another to court. Christians in front of pagan courts would lambast one another and think nothing of it. They were so divided and they didn't think at all about their Christian testimony. And surely this could have been settled without taking it uh, in front of the whole world that was watching what was going on as part of a congregation. There were issues of eating meat sacrificed to idols. There were issues of conduct in the church. The issue of the Lord's Supper particularly was a big one. The rich and the poor. The rich perhaps arrived at church a little earlier and they gorged themselves on the food and the wine. And that's what 1 Corinthians 11 is all about. And by the time the poor people arrived, all the food was gone. And Paul instructs the Corinthians to wait for one another, to search their hearts and to commemorate the Lord's Supper in a manner befitting the body and the blood of the Lord. There was the issue of, uh, of spiritual gifts. In particular, the gift of tongues seems to be viewed as the greatest gift. And all of the church was striving for the gift of tongues. And so Paul teaches about spiritual gifts and he lays them out one by one. And he, he teaches the value of every gift, that every gift is significant. And then there's the issue of the resurrection. Uh, with some people saying, well, there is no resurrection. When you come to the end of your, the road and you die, that's the end of, that's the last chapter. There's, there's nothing more. It's, you're finished. And Paul says, oh, what a, what a terrible way to end life and to think of it that way. Paul says there is another chapter. So he teaches about the resurrection of the body and, and the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. So while the church at Corinth had its challenges and Paul was concerned to help this church grow up and mature, I mean, they'd never really been part of a community that worked together and shared together and were united in purpose and mission. And I mean, where do you learn what it is to be a faithful follower of Christ unless you see it modeled somewhere? Where do you learn to be a good dad and a good mom unless you see it modeled somewhere where do you learn to be a faithful follower of Christ unless you perhaps see it in your own family or you see it in your church family and you see others around you that are are walking the the talk and and they're living for Christ so Paul is concerned to help these new Christians grow and come to grips with these issues but right in the middle or in the midst of this important letter comes the passage that, that Jennifer read for us this morning, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And we know this chapter best of all in 1 Corinthians because we hear it all the time at uh, weddings. It's a favorite passage. But I know when you look at the broader picture of 1 Corinthians, you can see why Paul penned these words in 1 Corinthians 13. I don't think he had weddings in mind, do you? I don't think he was thinking about weddings. This was a message that Paul really wanted this new church plant to grab hold onto. 
This was the major discipleship truth that the Corinthian believers needed to integrate into their lives. Love. Not pride. Not disunity. But love. It's quite a passage. Uh, let me just touch down uh, on a couple of things here. It's too long. It's too lengthy. Uh, and you'd be here for a long time if we went through every verse. But I, I, I'll pick a couple. I just love the first verse. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul speculates about a person uh, who had the ability to learn all the languages of earth. Do you know anybody who can speak five languages? I mean, is there anybody here? I mean, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I probably will. But is there anybody here who can speak five languages? Do I hear ten? No. <laughs> no. I mean, what a challenge. Uh, can you imagine uh, the ability to learn all the languages of the world? Go anywhere in the world and know the language of the people of that country? China? No problem. Russia? No problem. Mexico? No problem. Finland? Nepal? India, Thailand, Philippines, Japan, Vietnam, every country of the world. I mean, no one has ever been able to master something like that. Some people have learned to read 30 or 40 languages. I mean, that's incredible. And speak half of them. That's amazing. That's, that's beyond my comprehension. But Paul... Imagines a person who could learn all the languages of the earth. What an amazing missionary that would be. Part of the challenge of any missionary is learning the language. And here's a person when he or she landed at an airport, no problem. They could immediately communicate with the people on the ground. And yet Paul said, if you have that gift, as no one has it, and you don't have love, you're just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul's message to these Corinthian believers, and you look at why he writes this first couple of uh, chapters of 1 Corinthians, in which he's saying, you can be highly gifted. You can have a list of degrees behind your name. You can have traveled the world. You can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you're missing that important ingredient called love, it doesn't mean a thing. Nice to be educated. Nice to travel. Nice to learn languages. Nice to be sophisticated. But hey, it's completely useless if there's no love. A seminary president said, I remember some time talking ago with a, with a long-time member of a congregation pastored by a well-known preacher. She said more wistfully than critically, when he's in the pulpit and we listen to him preach, we wish he'd never leave. But when he's out of the pulpit and we feel the caustic nature of his life, we wish he'd never get back into the pulpit again. Perhaps that's why Jonathan Edwards resolved early in his life, I'm determined to preach no sermon 
or even to write one unless I'm motivated by the glory of God and the love for people for whom, to whom I speak. And Paul had this same message. Without love, our gifts accomplish nothing. In verse 2, Paul says, If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understand all of God's secret plans, and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. Just imagine... Uh, that we at TCC heard of someone like this that we would love to invite to be part of the ministry at TCC. And if someone came along and they walked through those doors and they had the gift of prophecy and they understood all of God's secret plans and they possessed all knowledge, wouldn't we say, wow, what a find. Send him our way, send her our way. They possess all knowledge. I mean, they understand all mysteries. They know their stuff. Think of any piece of knowledge and they know it. They got it down cold. And they have the gift of prophecy. They can speak perceptibly to a congregation. They can communicate truth effectively. I mean, it's the kind of person you write books about. They're incredible leaders and influencers. And yet Paul says, if you can do all of this, even though people might be startled at what you're able to do, if you don't have love, you are nothing. If you have all of these talents and abilities, but your life is devoid of love, it's a zero. And see, that was part of the issue in the church at Corinth. Some of them considered themselves to have a lot of knowledge in certain areas. They were quite puffed up about it. But their knowledge didn't help build community. It was divisive. Knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. It's, a, it's not a knock against knowledge. Not at all. It's simply a recognition that knowledge without love is ineffective and useless. I think it's wonderful that we're surrounded by educated people. Uh, there's a lot of education in this room. Some of it is academic. Some of it is uh, experience. And uh, lots of knowledge. I mean, you pile it all together, it'd be, it'd be quite a stack full of knowledge that's in this room. And so we have lots of information. <clears throat> we have lots of knowledge, lots of insight. But I can put that aside. And I'm so grateful, most of all, for the love of this body. For the love of this body. For the love of this community. <clears throat> that's what's impressive. That's what's encouraging. You can go to seminary. And you can get a degree or two or three. But the strange thing is that when you go to serve people, no one ever asks you, do you have a degree? I don't think I've ever been asked, do you have a degree? They're more concerned, do you love me? Do you care? Do you serve? And if your focus is on, well, what do you think of me? It's pretty shallow. Paul wanted to say, don't worry about your knowledge. Be concerned about your heart. I love the New Living Translation of 1 Corinthians 8.1. It says, but well, knowledge makes us feel important. It is love that strengthens the church. Can I move us uh, rather quickly to verse 4? Don't you think this verse was well aimed towards some of the problems in the Corinthian church? Love is patient and kind. 
Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. The love that Paul was talking about here is is agape love, a, a word for love that ranks the highest in caring for others. It's the way that God loves us with an agape love, a sacrificing love. And, and Paul, Paul is talking here about a love that always seeks the other person's best, always wants to build the other person up, always is looking out for the other person. How can I serve you? How can I come alongside of you? And Paul uses these words in verse 4 and onward to, to be descriptive of what this love really looks like. How does it translate? Now, the first two, love is patient, love is kind, because uh, this love of which Paul speaks comes to us from God. It reflects God. God's awfully patient with us. He's sure patient with me. God's awfully kind to us. He's sure kind to me. Love is not jealous. You might be reading, love does not envy. It's like... Paul is giving us a couple of clear landmarks when he says, well, love is patient and kind. And Corinthians, you need to be patient and kind to one another. But then he gets a little more specific. How do you measure that? He underscores some things that love doesn't do. He speaks to the issue of some things that get in the way of community. And there were many barriers in this young church plant. And Paul remarks in the first chapter, some of you are saying, well, I'm a follower of Paul. And others are saying, I'm a follower of Apollos. And some are saying, I'm a follower of, uh, of Peter. And some are saying, oh, oh, but I'm a follower of Christ. Topped you. Has Christ been divided into factions? He says this love of which he speaks does not envy. <laughs> There's a legend that the devil was crossing the Libyan desert. And he came across some imps, some demons that were trying to get a holy hermit to sin. And they were giving it their best shot. They were going to take him down. They attacked him with the lusts of the body. And he didn't flinch. They told him he looked like a fool out there by himself in the desert. And that didn't bother him. They attacked him with doubts, but he was able to handle them. And according to the legend, the devil watched all of this and said, Look, if you're dealing with a really, really holy person, you have to take special measures. And according to that legend, he walked up to the hermit and he said, Did you know that your best friend has just been made bishop of Alexandria? And according to the legend, a look of malignant jealousy crossed this holy man's face. It's just a legend. But if you know much about life, you know it has a great deal of truth attached to it. A, a great many folks who don't fall into the kinds of sins that, that many people fall into find themselves victims of envy. And the things we envy are often quite trivial. Somebody got promoted. Why would that bother us? Somebody makes more on the salary grid than I do. Somebody got the latest Xbox 360. Somebody has written a new book. Our premier, I understand, makes more money than other premiers in Canada. Why would that bother anybody? I've been part of congregations long enough to know that there are ebbs and flows to any congregation. Sometimes the congregation is really on the grow. Sometimes it plateaus. 
Sometimes it declines. Uh, None of us like to be in a context where the church is declining. And the worst thing that can happen is to be around people whose church is blossoming and yours is declining. Takes a lot of grace to say, oh, I'm so happy for you. (laughs) What is that? Envy, jealousy. And so when we're on the grow and God has blessed us, it's important for us to never create a sense that we're doing just great. To cause another congregation to be like, oh, isn't that wonderful? It's been encouraging and supporting to those who are going through challenging times. And Paul says, love does not boast. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud. There was a lot of pride in the Corinthian church. They were new Christians. They'd never really seen real community. Have you ever uh, been around someone who is boastful? It's kind of hard to be close to a person like that. But you have to ask, why are they boastful? And mostly it's because they feel inadequate, so they need to boost themselves. Isn't it challenging to carry on a conversation with a person who is self-focused? They never ask any questions like, how are you doing? They just want to tell you how they're doing. In many circles, we've elevated boasting to a fine art. Takes on a subtlety that maybe we don't even get ourselves. We may fool ourselves because we get so good at casually letting people know what we got going for ourselves. I heard the story of a professor who had a good friend by the name of Fred Smith. That's not a fictitious name. He, he, uh, he died a few years ago. He was 92 years old. He was a tremendous business leader. Um, and he was a fairly direct kind of guy. I think he lived in Texas. And Fred Smith said to this prof, God has given you some good gifts. The prof said, well, thank you, Fred. He said, what are you thanking me for? Well, you know, for what you just said. He said, I wasn't complimenting you. I was complimenting God. William Carey is called the father of modern missions. As a young man, he was a cobbler. He repaired shoes. But he was a brilliant linguist. Even as he repaired the shoes, he learned uh, Greek and Hebrew. Later, he he taught school. and, And then, of course, you know, he went to India. And because of his linguistic ability, 34 dialects and languages have the Bible in their language. When he was in India, he spent time with people who were there on business, usually people educated in the best schools. One day in one of the dinners, someone said in a rather loud voice, Mr. Carey, I understand that when you were growing up, you were a shoemaker. And uh, Carey said, no, 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 sir. He said, "I, I was not a shoemaker. I repaired shoes. I didn't have the ability to make them. And you see, somebody who can handle life that way is able to make a huge impact for God. Love doesn't boast. It doesn't destroy community. So 1 Corinthians 13 is very intentionally positioned in this letter to the Corinthian church. Divisions, disunity, pride, issues at the Lord's table, taking your brother to court. All of these are addressed through love. Love builds community. Love 
doesn't destroy it. Love protects community. You've maybe got a piece of paper in front of you this morning. Maybe you've been writing a few notes. I'm not sure. At least you've had a chance to doodle, if nothing else. It kind of passes some time. Uh, Here's a little exercise. Take some of that space and draw a row of zeros. And then total it. (laughs) Adds up to nothing. So get another row and total it. And another row and total it. And another row and total it. And you can fill up the whole page. And the whole thing adds up to nothing. Nothing. But you take one zero and put a one in front of it. And it counts for ten. Two is a hundred. Three is a thousand. Six is a million. Nine is a billion. And in some way that's true of love. Use all of your gifts without love and it adds up to nothing. But take the smallest gift and minister it in love. And it counts. It counts with people. And it counts with Jesus Christ. And this is the message of 1 Corinthians. At the heart of discipleship, at the heart of working through the issues of life, the sin that confronts us is this heart of love. And Paul says it's patient, it's kind with one another, it's not jealous, it's not boastful or proud or rude, and it never demands its own way.